I'm Doug Stanton, co-founder of the National Writer Series, and welcome to this podcast. I just have a special note I want to make today about a former guest, Jason Matthews. Jason recently passed away, and when I read the news on my phone, I stopped cold on the sidewalk. I didn't know him incredibly well, but I did know enough to realize that Jason was one of the most fascinating people I'd met. I'd never stopped thinking about our conversation at the National Writer Series. His life was filled with incredible humor and incredible risk. He came to us because we shared the same editor and agent who'd found him and nurtured his life experience into best-selling novels, The Red Sparrow being the first, which was also made into a movie. Jason was at the top of the thriller espionage game, a second-generation Jean le Carré. It's hard to describe or really top the fun that Jason brought to our conversation. For instance, when I picked him up at the Park Place Hotel in Traverse City, Michigan, before the onstage event, he was standing right next to me, and I couldn't find him anywhere in the lobby. It was like he'd disappeared. He'd changed his hat, turned his coat inside out, and did not look at all like the person I was looking for and with whom I just had lunch. Hey, Doug, he said, standing right next to me, a big smile on his face. Jason's novels starred Vladimir Putin as a main character with whom Jason worked against in Russia, and his novels have much to say about today's headlines in a timely but timeless manner. One of the moments I won't forget is this one. And it involves Jason and his wife, Suzanne Moran Matthews, living undercover in Russia and working with a Russian family whom the authorities were about to arrest. And that wasn't going to be good news. To save the family, Jason and Suzanne had to get them, get to their house, but they were being tailed as usual by Russian security. It was night and snowing. And Suzanne and Jason had unscrewed the dome light in the car, which I thought was a fascinating detail. Jason swerved around a corner, knowing that a series of trash dumpsters was up ahead. Suzanne opened the car door as the car disappeared around a corner out of sight. The dome light didn't come on. They had disabled it. And Jason pushed Suzanne from the moving car in order to help her own leap into the snow where she tumbled out of sight against the dumpsters. The security service continued past, still trailing Jason, unaware of what had happened. Suzanne made her way to the family's house, and she warned them that they were in danger. The family packed up, and a plan was devised, and eventually they relocated to the U.S. Years later, the Matthews had dinner with them in the United States. So if you'd met Jason, of course, you'd never guess any of this, except, of course, if you had the chance to hear him tell the story in his own words. Care for a drink? Surely. Yeah. Well, shake, shake and not stir. Yeah. Well, welcome, Jason. Thank you for being at the National Writer Series. It's a real pleasure. It's been really a lot of fun to get to know you, um, even though I, you did give us the slip last night. Um, um, but this novel, Red Sparrow, uh, you in the audience, you must buy this book. It is really one of the best things to come along in the world, both of great literature and also in the espionage um, genre. It was, I was able to, 
as you know, um, get an early copy of it and uh, was thrilled. I stayed up two nights reading it, as I said in my blurb. Um, why don't you tell us what Red Sparrow is about? Because, and we'll move to some of the terms and lexicon of the espionage game. All right. So what is Red Sparrow about? Well, generically, uh, Red Sparrow is a story of a, uh, a KGB girl. The KGB was the Russian intelligence service, foreign intelligence service. It's now called the SVR, which stands for foreign intelligence service. So, <laughs> so Dominika Egorova is a member of the service, um, and she is uh, deceived and mistreated and taken advantage of by the SVR and her uncle, who's a deputy director, and he makes her do um, tricky operations and sends her to Sparrow School. And Sparrow School was a school where they trained women to, be, uh, to, to, to do sexual entrapment operations, honey traps. And um, she, her, her, her rage builds and builds and builds. And uh, just about the time that she's ready to go off the deep end, she meets young CIA boy, Nate Nash, Nathaniel Nash. And the two of them are actually, uh, they're handling penetrations of, uh, in Moscow and Washington, and they fall in and out of love, and the story is about betrayal and trust and risk, and uh, has a twisted ending, and mm -hmm. that's all I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, it seems, <laughs> it seems, it's a fascinating book, I think, about the secrets we hold uh, within ourselves and from each other, um, and the cost of doing that, and then also the necessity sometimes to betray those secrets. Um, and so I do see it as a Romeo and Juliet kind of story in some ways between these two unlikely um, characters. You know, it, some people think that espionage might be simply a male genre, but I think really in, in, in your book, the, the hero is uh, Dominica. Yes. Right. Um, tell us, uh, I know the audience, I don't know if they really, tell us about the sexual entrapment in the Sparrow School. Does that exist? And what does she do in the novel? Well... Can, can you say? Or? You, have a, you have a whiteboard? I could draw a diagram. <laughs> um, in the early days of the, of, the, of the Cold War, the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was allegedly a sparrow school in Soviet Tartistan, which is uh, east of Moscow, in the, in the city of Kazan. And they trained women to uh, speak foreign languages and pull champagne corks and elicit information from male targets who they could uh, maneuver into honey traps, into compromising situations. They also had trained males who did the same thing, who were called ravens. And I've always wanted to know how to apply for that job, but... <laughs> the raven. The raven. Yeah. Never more. So tell... Um, Joe, in her introduction, called you a spy. Is uh -huh. that accurate? It is not accurate. Um, intelligence officer. Should we punish her now or no? <laughs> She'll have a drone over her house tomorrow morning. <laughs> uh, no, it's not accurate. Um, intelligence officers, at least in CIA, are called case officers or just simply officers. Um, the spies, who we call agents, uh, it is incorrect to call uh, CIA officers CIA agents. In our lexicon, agents are the foreigners we identify to steal secrets for us. Um, so an agent is the foreigner, and that 
more precisely, is the spy. That's the fellow who goes and photographs documents or steals secrets and reports them back to the handling officer. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, that, that leads to my question. What do case officers and spies do? I mean, why have them? I mean, what, what, what purpose do they serve in the world right. from your experience? Yeah. Espionage, uh, largely defined, um, is, well, it's been called the second oldest profession in the world. Uh, <laughs> what intelligence officers are, who they are, are clandestine journalists. Hmm. As, an, as an example, if the New York Times representative in Moscow went to the, for, the Russian foreign minister today to ask about Russia's energy policy, he would be told that Russia will, will loyally supply Western Europe uh, with uh, cheap and reliable energy. That's the public policy. The State Department, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, will go to the same minister and ask, what's your energy policy? And uh, he'll be told, we will supply uh, reliable energy, natural gas and oil, to Western Europe if you do not put a missile shield installations in Poland and the Czech Republic. That's the bilateral policy. At midnight behind the soccer stadium, Jason talks to the secretary of the foreign minister and gets the real story, steals the secret, the state secret that, I'm making this up, that Russia instead will sell oil and gas to China to create a crisis in Europe. So there are levels of secrets and levels of information. And so when you talk about clandestine journalism, what you really mean is you're writing the secret story of statecraft that may not be readily apparent, and your job is to cable that back to your bosses and et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah. The parallels with journalism are, are, are numerous. You look for a source, you know you have a story to write, you know you need to, you have intelligence requirements, um, you find your source, you vet your source, you write your story, which in our case is the cable to headquarters, and then you protect your source against all threats and, uh, and discovery and identification. And the skulking we do is called tradecraft. And so let's talk about tradecraft for a moment because it's so interesting. Um, tell the audience some of the terms. There's the bump and the brush pass, and I heard you talk today about the car toss. And what's a car toss? It involves a car. We, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in you, they're heavy though, right? So when you, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, uh, there, is, there is a part of what we do, um, being assigned as a uh, intelligence officer, as a case officer, to places like, uh, say, Portugal, is much different than being assigned to places such as Moscow or Havana or Beijing. Um, in the latter three countries, totalitarian country, there's often 24-hour surveillance. Mm -hmm. So we have to do things that are called impersonal communications where you do not, you're not seen with your source. So a car toss is throwing something out of a car at a designated place mm -hmm. to, um, to get a package or some information or receive it from an agent, a, a reporting source. I see, and, and Red Sparrow begins with Nate Nash, the uh, male hero, mm. uh, running something uh, you call SDR, Surveillance Detection Route. Tell us what that is. Well, once again, uh, in, in, a, in a capital where there's a lot of surveillance, uh, 
uh, an intelligence officer has to be black, has to be absolutely anonymous when he meets his agent at midnight behind the soccer stadium. So the surveillance detection run is a long route that tries to determine your status and tries to identify trailing surveillance. So in the novel, it's so fascinating because he'll get on a train, then he'll get off the train, then he'll backtrack, get in a cab, go back to perhaps the point of origin, then walk across the street in another cab. What he's trying to do, if I'm correct, is he's trying to detect surveillance. Right. 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 To see who's being followed. And then if he doesn't see anything, as you say in the novel, he's no, not covered in ticks, mm -hmm. he's free to meet um, a very fascinating character in Red Sparrow called Marble. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, and you mentioned earlier in your remarks, it, it, so he has a penetration into the Soviet intelligence service that is his access to Marble. Right. Am I correct? Yeah. Marble is the penetration marble of the is service. The okay. Right. Yeah. And, and Nate has to make sure before he meets Marble in, in Moscow that he doesn't have surveillance. Right. And in, in real life, uh, it's a very complicated thing. Hollywood would have it that uh, Bruce Willis gets an, onto a fast motorcycle and flies over a bridge and loses surveillance. No such thing. Right. Well, in, in, in Red Sparrow, in fact, Nate Nash is almost busted at the end of his, uh, during his meeting, his clan, supposedly clandestine meeting with Marble. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, as you know, um, May 14th of uh, this month, um, uh, an unfortunate young man w working as the third secretary in the economic session, a section in the, mo in the embassy in Moscow. What happened to him? His name is, um, was it uh, Fogel? Fogel. Yeah. It, it, it is almost as if the, the, the real life thing happened that you portray in your novel as the novel opens. Uh, I, I do not suspect that the publisher in New York arranged for the flap yeah. in Moscow, <laughs> concurrent to the publication date. I, I, I can't imagine that. Not, no, I think that uh, from what I, from, only from what I read in, in, in the public uh, sector, uh, that uh, young Mr. Fogel went out to meet a volunteer, someone who came to us, uh, came to us originally, and said, according to news reports, I have very important information about uh, radical Islam in Dagestan and Chechnya. Oh, which would relate to the Boston bombing. After the Boston bombing, that would be an irresistible uh, bait to dangle. So young Mr. Fogel went out with a, uh, an envelope of money and a wig to change his profile. He wasn't trying to get, in, you know, get into anywhere. Um, and when he got to the meeting site, as designated by the volunteer, I'm extrapolating now, um, the FSB, the internal service in, in Russia, arrested him. Um, Vladimir Putin needed a spy flap because it suits his domestic uh, narrative that dissidents in Russia um, are fueled by the West and Western intelligence services. So it, it, it suited his political, um, political agenda to have a nice little messy spy flap. So you feel it was an ambush? In some I think ways. almost certainly it was an ambush. So then people ask, well, then why in, in your right mind would Fogel and his superiors send him out into the Moscow night uh, against the 50% chance that the volunteer was real? Um, they had to go, and he probably went out in the expectation knowing that it was an even chance that he would be arrested. So he comes back to the States probably a hero in some ways, or at least... He's not in trouble, but the, but the Russian who volunteered to meet. Tell us about some of the fates of previous um, agents who've worked with 
foreign intelligence services, what, and they've been caught by this, the Russians. What's, mm -hmm. what's happened to them? What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you speculate? Mike? Well, in the case of Fogel, if indeed was, it was a setup, an ambush, then the dispatch volunteer, the dangle, will just go back to his regular job. He won't be punished. Um, during the Cold War, the actuarial table of survival for Russians spying for the, uh, for the West was 18 months. People, people survived, 18 months was the average. Um, there are some unbelievable stories of, um, of unbelievable courage. Uh, the fellow at GRU, which is Russian military intelligence, uh, there was a colonel named Oleg Penkovsky. He gave President Kennedy, who gave the White House, the United States, the information that uh, enabled the United States to stare down Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Penkovsky kept spying, kept collecting information, kept meeting his handlers, even when he knew the KGB was closing in on him. Uh, it is rumored that he was uh, fed into a crematorium oven feet first while alive. Mm -hmm. And they filmed it and showed it at military academies to dissuade future traitors. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's probably more fun to be a novelist than I would think. <laughs> I can see why you switched. Uh, uh, you've, you've never met my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I have. <laughs> um, but. You've said uh, publicly that you're, you were a tandem couple. That is, your wife did this as well. That's right. For, for actually 34 years, we retired close to, pretty close to one another. And we went from tour to tour to tour with family. Um, and we, we did the work together. Mm -hmm. uh, one dark and stormy night in Eastern Europe, uh, we were driving. It was a snowstorm. And uh, surveillance was behind us. And she rolled out of the car. She had a scarf like a babushka, and she rolled out. And her mission was to go and try to recontact the family of an agent we knew had been arrested. Uh, it was a, a desperately dangerous mission, which is why I let her uh, roll out of the car. <laughs> I, turned, I turned up the music in the car and led surveillance away, a, a critical function, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> a mother-in-law toss. <laughs> Why was it dangerous? I mean, what, what dangerous? Did she have diplomatic immunity? She, she also did. Yeah. But, for instance, uh, we, we knew the agent, for instance, was arrested. So knocking on his apartment door, we didn't know what was on the other side of the door. Were there three big goons waiting for exactly this kind of recontact? Uh, where the, was the family cowering in the corner? Mm -hmm. uh, Daddy's already in prison, and the mission was basically to get the the the, uh, the, the wife and daughter and son out to the west. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and it, as it turned out, they were not home. They had already been sent to internal exile, living in the countryside. Mm. Tell us about mice. We've talked a bit about the lexicon of the espionage game, but what what? What are some of the levers that you, uh, how do you approach someone to recruit them? Yeah, I'm often, often asked when I give the example of meeting someone behind the soccer stadium at midnight and in, in a denied area, it's, it's still, even after the Cold War is over, it still has mortal risk. We try to identify uh, basic motivators and vulnerabilities that enable us to push the right buttons to recruit foreign sources. And we have an acronym that is M-I-C-E, 
which basically stands for the four human motivators, money, ideology, conscience, and ego. The, uh, the agent who is uh, motivated by money, the venal agent, basically operates, you give me money, I'll steal your secret. We had, a, uh, we had an aircraft mechanic come to us one time and said, this was in the mid-70s, early 80s, and he said, our country has just received six MiG-23 export models from Russia. And uh, I, I will take pictures of them, and we were very interested in them at the time. We wanted to know about the avionics and the swept wings and the, the thrust nozzles and, and the ejection seat. So we said, okay, here's a camera, and uh, we'll pay you per frame, per usable frame. So you can picture back at the airfield in, in somewhere in a North African country, crawling all over the plane, taking snaps. And because he was vino and greedy, he got up on the nose, the shark nose of the MiG-23, to shoot into the cockpit. And he started sliding backwards. And he slid and he bounced off the nose needle that came out of the nose of the MiG called the pitot tube. It's used for measuring airspeed. And he bent it at a 20 degree angle and landed on his butt in, on the tarmac. And he tried to push it up to, the, to, you know, to straight and he couldn't and he couldn't and he couldn't. Now fast forward back to meeting and he's putting out, the, out the, the photographs and the penultimate photograph showed the nose needle bent down at a 20 degree angle. We said, what did you, are you kidding? What did you do? He went down the flight line and bent every nose needle on the, <laughs> on the remaining five aircraft. Needless to say, that venal agent, motivated by M money, uh, didn't work very much longer. <laughs> the I in ideology, uh, especially during the Cold War, ideology, people lose their ideology. They, they're, they're surfeited with the, the government they serve. They've, uh, they've had a horrible boss. They've been uh, denied promotion. Um, there was a Russian GRU general in New York whose son, his five-year-old son, was deathly ill, and Moscow uh, cabled back and said, you may not take him to a U.S. doctor. This was during the real Cold War. And the boy died. It took him eight years, his heart, his heart hardened, and he started uh, working with us. Hmm. And his name was Dmitry Polyakov, and he was the, reckoned to be one of the best sources we ever had, the loss of ideology. Hmm. Um, there are other examples of uh, agents who have a crisis of conscience. Uh, I'm, I'm making this as a, th a theoretical example, but a uh, Iranian nuclear scientist, perhaps educated in the West, a man of letters, a man of reason, starts realizing that if Iran gets a nuclear capability, it will change the course of the world. And that crisis of conscience sometimes results in them coming to, mm -hmm. to us to volunteer. Mm -hmm. And finally, the, the agent motivated by ego, which is actually one of the, more, the fun ones, um, you compliment, compliment an agent, uh, sometimes it, it's someone in search of an ego. Uh, there have been cultural revolutions and there have been purges in Russia and there have been uh, cleaning exercises in North Korea and people have had their spirits stamped down. I, I, I was meeting with one uh, once prospective agent, and he said, uh, we tried to develop a, a friendship and bonds of, of trust with him, and he told me at one time, uh, I'm only going to talk to you. 
my American friend, I won't talk to your organization and I won't talk to Washington. I said, fine, okay. So we talked a little bit about current events in his country, which was behind one, one curtain or another. And the next time I saw him, I said, you know, I owe you an apology. I've taken your small tidbit comments and I wrote them up in a report and they hit Washington like wildfire. It went to the NSC and it went to the White House. Woo, absolutely untrue. But he, was, he had had his spirit squashed by his country and by his government. And all of a sudden, here was somebody, here was something that he could uh, deliver. And he swelled up and he said, well, if you think that was good, wait till I tell you something else. And pretty soon he wanted to say, have you sent the, the next report to Washington? The, the, poor, the poor guy thought he was, he thought he was you know, spying for Jimmy Carter, God help him. Mm -hmm. um, and what's the enemies list? Well, the enemies list is, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's all under sort of the rubric of elicitation, of getting people to talk about themselves. So this is elicitation, the, the mice levers are part of the elicit. You identify one of them. Yeah, you're, big, you're, try, you're trying to decode sort of the, 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 the human cocktail. Everybody's different. And you try to get people to, to talk about what they do and what their fears are and uh, what they need out of life. And in certain cultures, cultures that basically uh, believe that the friend of my enemy is automatically my enemy. Conversely, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. So you tell a, a new agent or you tell an agent that you want to develop a little bit more, um, write down on a piece of paper 10 names of enemies that you have. People you don't like, neighbors who won't, whose dogs bark, just your enemies. You learn a lot from the list. You learn about who he knows, you learn about why he doesn't like people. And then the trick goes that you fold the piece of paper up, you put it in your pocket and you do nothing and it is almost an actuarial certainty that something will happen to one of those 10 people in the next three to six months. Mother-in-law will fall down the stairs, uh, a tornado will blow the roof off a guy's house, and the, and the new agent then says, oh my God, CIA did that for me. Mm. <laughs> and you've done nothing. You know, it's so interesting that... that so give me 10, 10 names. Okay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what you're really telling me is you're playing uh, in something you call, like to call the human envelope. That this isn't really about gizmos and gadgets, although Red Sparrow has its good share of those. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's, you're really, as, as a journalist actually, you're, you're trying to build rapport and get inside their headspace, right, and figure out what motivates them. To, but to go back to the first principle, so the idea is that they're stealing something from in their country, your uh, secrets that somehow would enhance security for the West or any other country. Is that, I mean, that's why you're doing it. Correct. Yeah. You, you, you address the national security concerns of your country by stealing secrets that impinge on it. Right. Right. But to go back to this idea of being in someone's uh, headspace, it. Um, you're not, you're not being kinetic. You're not riding a motorcycle and jumping off cliffs and parasailing down into the water. You're really meeting them. Where do you meet these people? Well, you, you, you meet them wherever you can. 
If you are a representative of the U.S. government overseas, you go to diplomatic receptions, you go to national days, you go to museum openings, you keep your eyes open, you read the newspaper, and the doubly hard is that you're doing it within the context of a foreign culture and often in a foreign language. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's very difficult. And the crazy thing about what we do, the end result is recruitment and then intelligence production, stealing those secrets, that agreeing to be recruited by any service, American, Russian, Chinese, Martian, it doesn't matter, is counterintuitive. It is, it is illogical. You're asking someone to break the laws of their country. You're asking someone to step into the zone of treason. You're asking someone to trust that no leak in Washington or no mole in Washington will ever expose them. And for modest amounts of money, usually. Mm -hmm. Nobody in their right mind would accept that deal, except for mice, or except for a sick daughter, or for, except for something else. Um, we sometimes are accused of expedient amorality, but there's nothing more important to a CIA case officer than the security of his or her agent. Mm -hmm. We do everything we do is to protect that source of information. In fact, that theme and that, that uh, runs through Red Sparrow quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, to what lengths would you go to protect an agent? Um, getting them out of the country or? Yeah, you could get them out of the country. It's called exfiltration. Mm -hmm. um, you, um, now, the movie Argo deals with an exfil. That's right. Right. Yeah, I was, I, I, and I, I, knew the, uh, I knew the character that Ben Affleck played, Tony Mendez. Um, six people got out of the American embassy in Tehran when it was taken over by the mob. Um, most of the embassy personnel were captured and held captive for 444 days. Six got out and somehow made their way to the residence of the Canadian ambassador. The Canadians were heroes in this case. They kept them, they hid them at great risk to themselves. And then Tony Mendez came up with the idea of going to Hollywood and uh, ginning up a a fake uh, production company and getting in and getting them out. Hmm. Yeah. You, um, uh, let's talk about uh, how you, you, you retired from this life, which I imagine had to be consuming. It's not a nine to five job. No, it's 24 right. hours, yeah. 24 hours. Um, and how do you come to write Red Sparrow after 33 years of doing this? Had you written other books before this? No, nothing. Uh, I'd written a gazillion cables to Washington. <laughs> and, and, and that's sort of, that's, uh, that's sort of uh, expository writing. You're trying to convince headquarters to give you more money, give you a budget, approve an operation to see it your way. But when I retired and there was a, a, a pretty substantial void in everything I was doing, um, I wrote it part, started writing partly um, for therapy, partly to, to, uh, to fill up the hours. But I also, I, I admire the modern thriller writers today, and I read a lot of them, and I read all of them. And you know, people like Jan Le Carré and Charles McCary, really excellent, all the rest. But I thought it would be fun to write, or to try to write, a spy novel with food in it and a little naughty parts, but with real tradecraft, real mm -hmm. stuff. And I, I might mention that every comma in the book was read and approved by the agency. Mm -hmm. We are bound to do that. 
for anything right. we write. When you say that, though, what are they um, looking for? I mean, because they're looking for things that often the reader doesn't care about necessarily, right? I mean, yeah, most, yeah, sometimes. Uh, oh, for instance, um, I mean, tell us all the parts they cut out. <laughs> Actually, they were they were very very good, and, and they didn't cut too much, mostly because I knew the minefield and how to navigate. But for instance, identifying what they still consider classified installations, mm -hmm. uh, they don't like to uh, they don't like to to acknowledge that we have stations in any given country, mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be careful. And then what they call sources and methods, mm -hmm. how we do things, mm -hmm. and sources who may even be active to this day. You have an interesting moment where one of the characters uses uh, burst transmission. Mm -hmm. Tell us what, it's in the novel. Tell us what that is. Well, once again, in a country where it would be dangerous or fatal to be seen with your American case officer handler, there are ways to... Uh, Pass them, you know, pass them uh, equipment where they can write on a, with a little keyboard um, a message, the intelligence, the secrets they stole that week, and then sh shoot it in a burst transmission to the waiting case officer, or the other way around, and undetectable. And there was there's the agent meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the few instances of gadgetry in the book. The rest of it deals, I think, really so viscerally with the emotions of um, Dominica and, and Nate, mm -hmm. and they do fall in love. And tell us about her in a, a moment and what her journey is in this, this um, because it's a very human journey, and it's, it's really almost universal in a way, has, aside from the espionage aspect. She was a ballet dancer to begin with. Right, right. and uh, her, her career was ruined because a rival uh, broke her foot while, while dancing. And um, then her, her, her despicable uncle puts her into Sparrow School. Uh, then she's used uh, roughly in a couple of degrading operations. And um, then she is targeted against this American, and she's not familiar with Americans, but when she starts meeting charming young Americans, not autobiographical, I might add, um, <laughs> She goes, she goes through a major change, change in her life. She loses her ideology, and she wants a, a little ego gratification, and she wants revenge. And something we discussed a while back, it is, it is impossible to, to consider what it must have been like and what it is still like to be an agent of a foreign power and to live with that icy secret and that dread of exposure every day, every day looking yourself in the mirror while shaving. And thinking what? And thinking, how long do I have? How long before something happens? How long before I make a mistake? Or my young American handler makes a mistake? Or God help me if some bilious American politician in Washington decides to leak my name? You know, the, the Pakistani doctor who first identified the compound that may have held bin Laden um, is in jail. In Pakistan. In Pakistan. When you say may have held, are you suggesting that he, he wasn't in that compound? The by the time he identified oh, it. it, it was the first, the first clue. That possibility. Possibility, which is, ended up, as we all know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know. It sounds like a very intense relationship develops between the case officer and the agent. And I, I also would imagine then that you, personally, uh, it must have filled you with stress. To, to hold that life in your hand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're basically in in one way you're you're living through what 
the, what the agent is living. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there, are, there are bureaucratic re- uh, requirements, and there's requirements for production, but there's nothing more poignant than the, the, the meeting in the safe house or the meeting on the street corner when he comes around the corner and you see his face light up and you know you're his lifeline. Mm-hmm. You've given him ego, you've given him a, a lease on life, and you know that basically you're putting him at great risk. Mm-hmm. And you said, I heard you say, that you can't fake this. No. That this friendship, this bond is real in a sense. It's not real in the way that a marriage might be real, but it is a kind of marriage. Marriage right? is more dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you make your wife jump out of moving cars. Exactly. It is. It's, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were cases of uh, not in denied areas, not in these really hard totalitarian states, but there were cases of the, the bond between case officer and agent that were so close that, um, you know, sort of against the rule, agents would stand up as God, godfathers for, for the American officer's kid or vice versa. Um, they would go to the United States sort of separately and then have vacations together. It, it, you know, it, it could get almost uh, fraternal, you know, sort mm-hmm. of like brothers, yeah. In fact, that's really the dynamic that begins to develop in Red Sparrow, right, between Nate and Dominica, right? Isn't it, I mean, don't they begin to obviously fall in love and mm-hmm. they cross a line? Uh, right, but, yeah, and, and thank God it's fiction. Uh, you know, any, any case officer who sleeps with his or her agent is in big trouble bureaucratically. But in, in this case, they cross that line, and they try to step back over it, and they cross it again, and it's, it's the conflict. It's, it's love and, and duty and honor and betrayal and trust and risk. Right. Yep. Um, so when you sat down to write this book, uh, when you, you say it was therapy, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, I, I think it, 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 it was a way more gently to separate myself from my life for 33 years. Uh, we all go through it. Um, officers who have served 15, 20, 25, 30 years, they've done it full out. They've, they've, they've done it a lot. When you pick up a phone, uh, you, you, even today you say, you know, it could be bugged. It's not that you're paranoid, it's just that it's the automatic reaction. Did you live with that, the actuality of it being bugged? Absolutely. We, we lived in, in denied areas. Now, what uh, is a denied area, Jason? It's where you have constant surveillance. Okay. Uh, traditionally, Russia, uh, Cuba, China, uh, Vietnam during the old days. Uh, Burma could be a denied area. Uh, North Korea, certainly. I mean, you, can go, you went there uh, working out of the embassies. You, I mean, you, you, you walked around as Jason Matthews. Correct, yeah. So you weren't, it was, this was not a covert operation. No, no. But, you know, you wake up uh, in, in, in one posting. We used to wake up and go from the bedroom through the living room to the kitchen. We had a one-year-old daughter at that time. And in the uh, ashtray on the coffee table, there was the stubbed-out cigarette butts of the entry team that had come in that night and had left the butts to show us that they were there. And what were they doing in the house? Changing the batteries, leaving a message, we would come home to, we had a 100-pound black lab who was goofy and friendly, thank goodness, and we'd come home and he wouldn't be around, he wouldn't be around, and we'd open the closet door and they'd be sitting with the tongue out, tail wagging. The entry team had put him in the closet. He, he, he had not attacked them, thank goodness, you know, and they'd close them up, 
just to show us that they could. And what are they changing the batteries in? Cameras and microphones? Yes, yeah. And uh, when you go to a denied area, you're, you're trained basically to expect and to be able to live and, and to mentally handle that kind of constant surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, it's harder than for others. And, you, and by surveillance, you mean surveillance everywhere in the house? Yeah, cameras in the bathroom and the master bedroom and kitchen and front door and back door. They want to see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know this, and it's probably not a good idea to cover those cameras because then they know that you know. Exactly. So what, what, this is where it gets into the realm of writing, I think, where because you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, you must have began to create another Jason in a way who's kind of watching the Jason watch this happen in order to create a distance from the experience. It had to be nerve-wracking. You mean Did the, it not? The, just, the writing or, no, the, no, or the living? Just living in the surveillance. It was kind of, you were being, um, you were being watched as a character is watched in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah, in a way. Did, did, it not, did it bother you? Was it difficult? Well, my wife and I, were, our makeups just happened to be that we could, we could handle it. Instructors said, you know, put it out of your mind, give them a show. The whole point was to somehow connect with the opposition. The same thing happened with surveillance teams on the street. You yeah. know, you tried that psychic connection with them. Um, other officers, other wives uh, who weren't in the agency had a really hard time. Mm -hmm. You know, stepping out of the shower knowing that four guys across the street were lighting up cigars and, and watching, watching her naked. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You would leave at Christmas um, in, your, in your car parked in the street a frozen turkey sometimes. Well, it, that, was, that was a trick that was sometimes done, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, especially during the Christmas season. They have, you know, Christian, Christian tradition, even though it was the communist countries. And you'd, uh, you'd, leave, uh, you'd leave a tur turkey or a goose in the back of your car frozen, lock your car, go up, to your, uh, go up to your apartment as a gift for surveillance. They had keys to your car. They'd open it up and take it. Never thank you, never acknowledge it. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was the psychic connection. We used to walk back to sometimes surveillance cars and say, I have an extra six-pack of Coke. Do you want it? And they'd take it and put it under the seat. Not that you're trying to, to, to defeat them, not that you're trying to fool them, but you're giving them just a little glimpse of you know, this, is, this is a human guy. This is not just the main enemy, not just the target. I see. You're trying to become human to them, and, right. and you're trying to make them soften up. There's, there's a story of a, 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 a State Department officer, and they don't have the same kind of training. He was in Moscow, and he was horrible towards surveillance, and he would be flipping them the bird and trying to get away from them and driving up one-way streets. And one day, his car was stolen. Oh, he was outraged. This is an outrage. What's going on? And the Moscow police finally came to him, and they said, you know, at a couple of months, uh, we found your car, and we'll, like, we, we'll take you to it. Well, it's about time. You guys are this, and the corruption in Russia is it. Keep going. You know, more rope, more rope, more He got into, into a police car, another car behind them, and they, they drove out of the city, past the ring road, now going on straight highways, wheat fields on either side. And all of a sudden, it dawned on this brilliant diplomat that maybe he had had one loudmouth uh, episode too many. They finally slowed and pulled over to the side of the street, and the cops got out, and he was sure that they were going to shoot him and roll him into the ditch. But instead, the cops pointed out to the middle of the wheat field, 
and said, there's your car. And just visible among the top of the wheat was the roof of his car. The thing was that from the road to where his car was, the wheat was absolutely untouched. They'd probably lowered it with a helicopter. <laughs> so, Spasibo, you know, the Russians say, go get your car. He crunches through the wheat and tramples the wheat, gets into his car, fires it up, drives out of the wheat field, leaving a long swatch. He pulls up, and the cops say, everything okay now, sir? You know, Mr. American Diplomat? And the guy, not learning a lesson, says, you know, I had a book on the rear, uh, on, on the rear shelf. It's missing. Someone stole it. Well, I'm sorry, we can't help you, sir. So he drove back fuming to Moscow, and when he got into his apartment, the book was in its original place in the bookshelf. <laughs> Surveillance. All powerful, all intrusive. I thought they were going to charge him for the wheat. I was waiting. <laughs> you know, and then it's a funny story, because you actually are sympathizing with the Russian guy. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Here, here's, here's some, here's some, you know, some buttoned-downed, uh, you know, ugly American, arrogant, who thinks they can tweak the Russian bear. Yeah, no, it's, so it's about, one of the things about the, the novel is that it's really a novel about the humanity of people and the inhumanity of people. Hmm. And Dominica, especially, um, because of some decisions she makes, certainly experiences the brute hand of, of, uh, of her own government. Um, when you were writing, did you think it would be published? Because we have a lot of writers in this audience, and, and I'm sure they're fascinated by how you decided, because you told me you, you turned in the novel finished, it was about 80% correct. So how did, you, how did you learn to write dialogue and scene and character? And, and so where did, yeah. uh, all I can tell you is, you know, 30 plus years, trying to learn about people and trying to, you know, to, to listen to people, trying to elicit information, uh, you know, throwing bones and doing things, um, and listening to different characters inside our organization. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the, the, the brilliant counterintelligence officer or the irascible old veteran or the careerist. Is that Benford and Gable? Gable and, and, and others. Um, Basically, you know, you, you try to use the, the patois and you try to, but I, I had no expectation that I would, I would publish. And I, as I said, I was writing it mostly therapeutically, but also to try to jam in as many uh, real details as I could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we, you and I talked about this. Uh, the heroine, who became the main character, actually evolved. She took over the book. She basically took, took me over. As she, as she grew, and as she became the most compelling and evocative character, I think. Mm -hmm. in, in she reminds me of uh, Elizabeth Salander uh -huh. from the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy. Very interesting. I, there's a feel in this book about uh, a woman's journey towards some type of authenticity in a very male uh, world, and which makes, I think, the book elevates it. You know, it's, this is not just a kind of this is not a hook and bullet kind of book. You've written something different. Um, would you want to read us a, a passage? Sure, sure, um, I can. Yeah. And uh, have you, by the way, you know, this is your very first book event mm -hmm. um, of a national book tour. I, you know, we're so thrilled that you've decided, and your publishers agreed to let you launch here. I mean, it's um, you're headed off to um, Dallas, Los Angeles, New York, Phoenix, San Diego, 
Washington, D.C., comma, and Traverse City, Michigan. It's on the back. <laughs> It's funny with Traverse City, they put comma MI because no one else knows where Traverse City is. <laughs> and the, the, the back blurb, in the spy tradition of John le Carre, this electrifying thriller is filled with insider detail from the life of a veteran CIA officer. And um, we haven't talked about, before you read, tell us about Putin and, and his character, because he's in the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think he's read the book? Because when I was reading the book, I was afraid he was going to find out that I was reading the book. <laughs> And I, do, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he, if he reads English. I don't know if they will, will translate a bit of it and give him an executive summary. I think so many books critical of President Putin have come out that a, uh, that a sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, spy, spy account of what he does and who he is uh, probably won't, um, probably won't concern him too much. Right, but that, before we go to the excerpt, that reminds me that the Putin part of this book and what makes it, and also the, the Fogel incident, May 14th, mm -hmm. which is really drawn, which, which mirrors the novel very closely, is that you do, this novel portrays a new Cold War, uh, post 9-11, post fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. Um, just talk a moment about what that is, because it's not about nukes and territory, it's about exerting influence. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and there have been some very scholarly books written about the, the, the notion of a new Cold War. Instead of the Politburo trying to preserve world communism or promote it, it is now um, President Putin and his oligarch friends and his former FSB colleagues in, throughout the government who are now um, using as a ticket oil and natural gas to Western Europe and the Baltics suppression of uh, separatists in, in Chechnya and Dagestan and Georgia. It is his intent to weaken NATO, not by military force, but, but by uh, in, in investment and enticing Western money to come in. Um, it is about breaking up the American-European-Atlantic alliance. It is about mischief in Iran and Syria. Um, People have asked, in his right mind, does he want to see a nuclear Iran? Because Iran is on their border, too. Um, but it is, it is Russian xenophobia and desire to, to keep a hand in the great game mm -hmm. that is leading him this way. And uh, in 2007, 8, and 9, there was a fantastic investment boom in Russia. Mm -hmm. People were making billions of dollars overnight. Uh, but corruption is rampant. And... Um, and President Putin has those ice blue, ice blue eyes, and uh, he wants to stay in the game. Mm -hmm. That's the new Cold War. Mm -hmm. Where does China fit into this? What's China's 20-year plan? Well, is I, there one? I think China's 20-year plan is hegemony in the Pacific. It's getting Taiwan back. It's figuring out um, how to continue stealing secrets from the United States via cyber warfare, mm -hmm. the, the premier cyber warriors. Um, and it's, uh, they have their own problems. They have a tremendous environmental crisis going on. They've got a demographic problem. They, like other totalitarian states, uh, are trembling at the thought of an uncontrolled internet, uh, an information cloud out there. That really is a, a nightmare scenario. For all of them. For places like Saudi Arabia, for places like Iran. 
And if you don't doubt it, I mean, there's no internet service in Iran. Mm -hmm. They don't want, you know, especially the younger generations to be informed. We recently had Blaine Harden here, author of um, Escape from Camp 14, uh -huh. about North Korea. Yeah. What, what can you tell us about North Korea? Is it part of this triad, or is it? It's really not. It's, uh, it, I, it, in my opinion, uh, it's a very dangerous, volatile, minor player in an area. Um, whether they have uh, nukes and delivery systems for them um, still remains to be seen. They've done some tests, but they, they're considered a nuclear power. Um, the dangerous thing is the behind the scenes that little chubby uh, successor leader, Kim Jong-un, um, is trying to consolidate his power. He's, I, I've read that he's, uh, he's fired some older generals and uh, saber-rattling for them is an art form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, um, would you read from a section of the book and would you set it up for us? Um, it takes place in about the middle. Right. Um, after, after Dominica has all her, all her disappointments in life after she's been betrayed, uh, she, has a, uh, she has a maternal uh, guiding figure, an, an older woman, who defies the Soviet uh, Russian bear and is assassinated. Um, uh, she comes tearfully to Nate and she basically recruits herself. Um, the best recruitments um, are the ones where the agent basically comes up and, and tells you, I want to work with you. Like the, the little guy who thought he was spying for Jimmy Carter. He, he recruited himself. You line up the situation, but you do it. Anyway, Dominica, uh, very emotional, uh, is, is telling Nate that she wants to uh, work with him. So the best recru recruitments are the one where the agent recruits himself. His instructor had bellowed at the farm. Remember that, no surprises, a natural evolution, he had said. Well, this was hardly a natural evolution of the phase recruitment. Nate felt like he had just run class four rapids in a bathtub. It was an hour later and Dominica had never actually uttered, yes, I will do it. No agent makes the decision without a handshake, with a handshake and a signature. Instead, Nate just got her to start talking about it. He had told her, whatever you decide, I promise we will work safely which is the standard catechism when addressing agents. You meant it, but everyone, case officer and agent alike, knows that really long-term survival for an agent, especially inside Russia, is unlikely. But the bland comment got a reaction. To do this work correctly, we cannot avoid risks. We both know that, said Domenica archly. She said, we, thought Nate. And we'll start slowly, carefully, if we decide to start at all, he said. Exactly, said Domenica, if we decide. And we'll proceed as quickly or slowly as you want, said Nate. Your side can examine my motivatia at their leisure. If our collaboration turns out to be unsatisfactory, I will tell you, and we will agree to the oconchanie, the termination of our relationship. They apparently had the same agent handling cant in the SVR. She was through the first stage. It was getting late. Dominica stood and reached for her coat. Nate helped her, watching her eyes, the corner of her mouth, her hands. Was this going to stick? They stood looking at each other for a moment. She turned to him at the door, offered her hand. He took it and said good night, and she left quickly, making no sound in the stairwell. After Dominica left his apartment, Nate stayed up, jotting notes, remembering what she had told him. He resisted the idiotic urge to walk to the embassy, wake up the station, and begin writing cables to headquarters. 
recruitment, SVR officer, sparrow cadre, assassinations. Her uncle runs the whole outfit. It's like a spy movie, for Christ's sake. He couldn't wait to get into the station tomorrow. Then his high spirits evaporated. He tossed in bed, throwing the bedclothes off. The Dead Sea fruit turned to ashes in his mouth. He had to secure the recruitment, make sure of her commitment. She could back out. A lot of agents did. When he put her in harness, he'd have headquarters breathing down her neck, down his neck. What's her motivation? How much salary? What's her access? What do you mean? She didn't sign a secrecy agreement. This was very sudden. Is she a provocation? Production. They were going to want results fast. They would ask first for the best information she, she could get, and that would be dangerous. The little men in the little offices with the little beady eyes would want to validate her as a bona fide asset. Everything would be a test. They would not be satisfied until information was corroborated, until she was boxed past the polygraph. Push her too hard or push in the wrong direction, and they'd lose her. Nate knew that. And if he lost her, after claiming recruitment, there would be the knowing looks from headquarters. Case was bogus from the start. That was just the beginning. If Dominica were caught, the SVR would kill her. It didn't matter how she was caught, a mole in headquarters, a mistaken handling, hostile surveillance, or simply bad luck. The lights coming on with her standing in front of an open safe drawer with a rollover camera. Nate turned over in the bed. There would be an interrogation and a trial, but they wouldn't care about the facts. Uncle Vanya wouldn't save her. They'd walk her barefoot and wearing a prison smock to the basement of the Lubyanka, or La Fortovo, or Butirka. They'd push her down the hallway lined with chipped steel doors into the room with the drain and the sloping floor and the hooks in the ceiling beams and the stapled wax cardboard coffin standing upright in the corner of the room. They'd shoot her behind the right ear even before she was halfway into the room, no warning, and they'd look at her lying face down on the floor before picking her up, wrists and ankles, and dropping her into the cardboard coffin. That simple, that final. Wow, thank you. <clears throat> Now, I notice, I mean, that's the first time you've read publicly from this novel. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. That was great. How did it feel? Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> did it really? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not used to it. And some poor bastard had to read the whole thing for the audiobook. <laughs> I couldn't imagine doing that. <laughs> you said something interesting to me when we were talking. You said you don't really have a public persona yet through which to talk about this novel. Because you've really spent 33 years kind of not being the guy who blends in, but being the guy who's always interested in somebody else's story, right? And now you have to talk about your own. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity at least once tonight to use the term wilderness of mirrors. Okay. No, we, 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 live, we live below the radar. We try to. We live with cover. We live with... Uh, going from place to place to place. We, we learn languages, we try to blend into the culture. When you recruit someone, you have to, you have to get clandestine about it. And yeah, it's, it's a new experience uh, with, a, with a public sort of face. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, right after this section that uh, Jason read, there's a, a recipe. Mm -hmm. This is the only espionage, the only literary espionage novel I know of that has about a dozen recipes salted throughout it which actually are the dishes that have been eaten in the scene you've just finished reading. Tell us about why you did that. Uh, well, actually, there's a, re there's a recipe at the end of each chapter. Okay. And uh, I, I've, I've, admi I've admired books uh, where the author has written 
in detail about a, a sumptuous dinner or, or, or loving a certain dish. A lot of foreign writers do that somewhat better than, than we do. I remember William F. Buckley in his Blackford Oaks novels uh, described uh, dinners and cooking things and, and dinner parties. So I thought it would be fun, and I, but I didn't want to muck it up, so I put the, the, the recipes in the back of each chapter are very elliptical with no measures or no oven temperatures or no times. <laughs> it's almost like, here's a little hint about what you have to do, stand back and good luck. <laughs> Did your editor like the idea of the recipes in the book? About 50% of all the people that, that, that helped me with this disliked it, and 50% liked it, and some people who have um, reviewed the book thought it was a gimmick, others, others thought it was a, a, a distraction, others liked it, but as a literary agent that you know well said, as long as they talk about it. Right. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk. Uh, Let's talk more with Jason if we bring up the house lights, and we'd love to take some questions from our audience. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Jason, we have microphones, and if you will stand and say your name and, and speak away. Yes, over here, Roger. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating book, actually. My wife always says I never read her books, but this is one she'll have to fight me for. Um, <laughs> Do you see this as evolving into a, a series? Do you have a character or characters, not knowing the outcome of it, that you see moving on? Do you see a future? Yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm writing. I'm about halfway through a second, a second book, which is in essence uh, sort of a, a, a sequel with, with many of the same characters, with uh, new operations and new threats and. Um, at least, at least one more. Just say yes. You've got a whole bunch of them on. And... Okay, here's a question over here. My comment is I hope your third or next uh, book is an autobiography. And the question is, uh, when uh, Valerie uh, Plame was uh, exposed, uh, what effect did this have on the agency and then did we have uh, agents who were exposed and lost? Um, it, it, to, to my knowledge, it had very, very little effect overall on the agency. Um, her exposure, her, her, her naming, her being named as a, uh, as a, a CIA employee, to my knowledge, did not, um, did not result in any arrest of any agent, any loss of any agent, any dissolution of any agent network. She had a very limited overseas, uh, she, she, worked, she worked for me at one point in, in our careers. Uh, brilliant desk officer, headquarters desk officer, but had a limited overseas experience. Yes, up in the balcony. I was just wondering how many languages you speak and um, what would be the most useful languages to learn in this business? Uh, I, I've, been, I've, been, uh, I've been taught uh, uh, three or four or five languages, promptly forgot some of them, most of them. Um, I've, I'm from a Greek family, so I, sp I speak Greek. Um, learned the usual Romance languages, Italian, French, Spanish, um, but had to learn some other, other sort of very, very weird ones. The agency is looking for candidates who speak what they call the critical strategic languages. Uh, 
uh, Mandarin, uh, Farsi, Arabic, uh, Hindu, Urdu, uh, obviously, the languages of the, of the hot, hot spots these days. Down here. Yes, there's one right over here. Right here. Um, yes, I was just wondering, this is about CIA operations in general. How do they weigh you know, the potential benefits of what might happen in that region of the world against the blowback both, or well, obviously potential blowback against both the US foreign positioning in that area and local human and civil rights? Uh, any operation, uh, long or short, uh, an operation just doesn't you know, start on Monday and end on Friday. These are, these are long sort of pr protracted things, um, are driven by intelligence requirements. What Washington needs to know, where they need to know it, and the, uh, the function of collecting is always balanced against risk, against blowback, uh, against the safety and danger. Um, it, it's, not, it's, not a perfect, it's not a perfect system, but there is a concerted effort to balance all, all elements uh, before going into, a, uh, into an operation. A lot of people would say, well, CIA has, uh, has messed up so often, it doesn't sound like uh, you guys do it right. It's axiomatic that the successes are never, are never discussed, and the, and the failures are always trumpeted, always uh, trumpeted. So it sounds like we have a horrible, horrible box score. In fact, you've kind of sketched to me very, very briefly the idea that what you, what Red Sparrow is about in your own experience is really about the human, human intelligence, the mm -hmm. collection um, of, which is very different than what we've been reading so much about in the news, which is more um, having to do with drones and so on. And the, so the, you're, you're somewhat old school, am, am I right? And the book is about an old school, uh, the, the, the classical traditions of intelligence collection. Yeah, I, I, I think that the global war on terror and, and, and the, the, the pressures and the resource demands that it, it puts on the entire U.S. government has um, in some ways um, eclipsed or diverted attention to some of that old school, what they call human, human intelligence. Uh, the best defense against terrorism, the best defense against the spy in our midst is information, is intelligence. Uh, in the history of uh, spying and espionage, we've caught American traitors almost exclusively because we had sources inside the Kremlin telling us, you've got a problem. You've got a guy named Robert Hansen. You've got a guy named Rick Ames. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone remember the three, uh, the ten illegals expelled from New York three years ago? These people had been in the United States between 10 and, and 20 years. They had uh, detailed legends. Uh, I don't know. Oh, no, exactly. What's a legend? A legend is basically a a, a, a biographic um, or biographic profile of where they were born and what they lived and who they what they do. It's all it's all false. Right. Uh, and they were Russian intelligence officers living as Americans. Much like the television show The Americans. Exactly. Exactly so. You think that's a good show? Do you enjoy it? It, it has some it has some inaccuracies, but I think it's generally very good. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, the 10 illegals were caught because we had someone in Moscow who was deputy chief of the illegals directorate, who, he, who eventually defected. It's, his name is Poteyev. It's in the news. 
fact, I've seen some video of them doing um, tradecraft, that is the Russian illegals trading information. Um, you, can, you can view it when you go to New York. So what you're telling us is that this, while it seems fictional, this is happening in our midst. Uh, Every day. Really? Yep. Um, the Canadians just had a young sub-lieutenant, a naval lieutenant, uh, caught selling secrets. Um, Ryan Fogel was caught in Moscow. Uh, there's, there's, there's someone, you know, in Traverse City who, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it, it goes on. It's, it, it's the great game. It's, sec it's the second oldest uh, profession in the world. Mm -hmm. Writing being the first. Yes. <laughs> And what it has in common with the, the, the first oldest, is some, someone's going to get it in the end. All right. Hi, Heather. Could, hi. Could you talk about um, raising a family while having this as a job and whether agents who their spouses also are, are not agents, but you know what I mean. Officers, yeah. Officers. Um, is that more effective to have both partners being officers together, um, or most of them, only one person in the family does it? And were there times when you were th doubting your choice of career when you were raising your kids? Um, it's, bo it's both good and bad, um, with both, with both uh, parents uh, having a, you know, a job. Uh, we often, I stayed home at night and then Suzanne did something or vice versa. Um, as we progressed in our career, she started doing more of the, of the mom track, but uh, she she did some Except things. Except when you made her jump out of the car. Well, that's, yeah. that's different, yeah. <laughs> um, raise, raising kids uh, as agency officers, um, when they're little, you don't tell them what you do. Um, mommy and daddy work at the embassy, or mommy and daddy are doing X, Y, Z. But you do work at the embassy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's true, yeah. Yeah, but you don't tell them, you don't tell them CIA. <laughs> because um, the nannies and the babysitters are all working for the the internal service, and, and they're asking the little, the little ones, what does mommy and daddy do? Where's mommy and daddy tonight? But at around the age of 12 or 13 or 14, many people tell their kids what their parents or parent does because they have to be sort of prepared to deflect questions in the schoolyard because those kids hear their parents, embassy employees, talking about Jason's the spook this and Suzanne's the spook that. So our kids had to be sort of forearmed and forewarned. When they were little, too, you know, we went to one country that there was a lot of terrorism. And every day, uh, driving them to the kindergarten, we had guards looking under the car with the mirrors. And our kids said, what, what are those guys doing, Daddy? And my wife and I had to say, well, there are a lot of little kittens, and we didn't want the, anything. <laughs> they were looking for limpet mines, for God's sake. And dropping them off every day in front of the uh, in front of the kindergarten, um, looking in the mirror, waiting for the you know cars to roll up. And it was, it was so it, that was a little nervous making, and you you always had to had to take care. But uh, our kids grew up living in in various countries around the world. They're bitten by the travel bug. As teenagers, uh, they got on buses and met friends and had wine and, uh, you know, they, fant fantastic childhood. And they saw things and they traveled to the places, went to international schools, met a lot of friends. It was a, it was a great childhood for them. And was, was, I feel it was a great gift to give them. Hmm. Interesting. Um, who's closest to a microphone? I don't, yeah, Roger, go ahead. And then we'll go up to the balcony. Uh, 
You've talked about psychic connections tonight. Um, Dominica has a special gift at one point in time. Benford thinks she's clairvoyant. Um, can you just talk about that part and why you would um, add that to the book? Mm -hmm. um, as, as a character, I, I was mentioning that the Dominica grew and evolved and became stronger and became more angry and uh, vengeful and uh, savored the icy, the icy thrill of being a spy in her stomach. And uh, agents and, um, and publishers said, you need an added dimension for her. I said, dementia? No, dimension. <laughs> so I thought, you know, what could she do? Uh, could she read minds? Uh, would it be another hunger game? Would it turn into a werewolf at midnight? And I stumbled upon the medical condition called synesthesia, where the written, word, uh, written words and numbers are, are read but appear to the synesthete as colors. Um, so then I sort of stretched it, and uh, Dominica can read colors blooming around uh, interlocutors' heads and can determine through the colors and the brightness and the intensity whether they're lying or deceitful or what their nature is. I tried not to schmaltz it up too much, not to make it too Hunger Games, but um, it, was, it was an added thing that uh, people thought might be, might be interesting. I don't know if it worked. It does. It's really fascinating because it, it's just the right touch. You know, how, about, how about out in the balcony? Do we have a mic up there? Go ahead. Um, thank you. I have a two-part question. Would you mind sharing with us what you think personally of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks? And then the second part is, as an author, if you were to put him in your second novel, how would you write the rest of his story? Wow. We have ways of making you talk here. There's a... um, I don't know too many, uh, too many details of just what I've read, but I extrapolate from my experience. I think uh, Mr. Assange uh, makes, makes, his, makes his living on, on sort of stealing classified information and publishing it. I think what is sad is that he, he somehow picked on and identified this, this young Amer little American uh, corporal or Sergeant Bradley, whatever his name is, who is now in, in jail for a good long time. Um, it, it, did, he def did he recruit? Are you saying that in the, in the mice uh, that Bradley was being... Assange found one of his buttons. Ego, maybe, or whatever. Oh, there was money or ideology, Okay, his conscience. Um, and young Bradley stole, I don't know how many thousands of uh, State, State Department and U.S. government cables, the most embarrassing ones... Uh, included uh, State Department assessments of foreign leaders, um, foreign leaders' personalities, um, some other things. Um, what, it was an outrage, and it was horrible, and, and I'm not excusing it, but the, the, the sum total and, and, and the mean level of, um, of classification was not, was not incredibly damaging. It was, it was more embarrassing than it was damaging. What happens to Assange is I think he's, he's actually sort of a sad character. He's, he's driven by some inner demons. Um, watching him on TV, is he still in, is still in lockdown in the Chilean embassy in London? I don't know. Is he? Um, what, you know, 
he's going he's to get extradited. It, it, it's it's going to come to a sort of a, a sad ending. Um, what do you think motivated someone like Assange to do this? Because, you know, um, case officers steal secrets. He stole secrets. What, what does a case officer do with their secrets versus what he did with the secrets he had Bradley steal? Yeah, espionage is undetectably stealing secrets. Okay. So the secrets, the intelligence that we collect must never be revealed. Um, but Assange's whole raison d'etre seems to be to get secrets, to get classified cables, and then to publish them. So I, I, leave, it, I leave it to you all about what motivates him, what, what fires are burning inside him that he feels he has to do. Is he righting the wrongs of the world? Is he getting back at the U.S. Public po uh, foreign policy? Um, I don't know. Right. Um, down here, yes. Next, yes. In your Next. 30, in your 33 years, were there ever attempts uh, to trap you like a honey trap or anything in those? <laughs> or you, you just did that to the other people? Uh, no, actually, were West you a raven? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, the Western services, I'm generalizing now, but Western services eschewed the sexual entrapment as an operational technique because in our, in our catechism, our belief that any agent recruited by blackmail, by coercion, would be resentful and prone to betrayal and prone to fabrication and not a reliable asset. It would fly against our precept of being almost like a brother to an agent and protecting them always. Um, the Russians and others have no such compunction. If, uh, if a foreign diplomat in Moscow shows predilection for redheads, uh, he will have redheads in front of him every hour of the day. <laughs> I, I, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's... And you know, some of the big spy cases throughout the years uh, you know, Western diplomats and Western businessmen were seduced. Um, so the CIA doesn't, doesn't particularly do that. Uh, were you ever a target of a sparrow? No, because A, I was, I was a diplomat, and B, I, I never put myself sort of in that, in that zone. Um, when we were in uh, denied areas, we, we really behaved. I mean... We, we didn't go out with the boys to, you know, to a club. We, we just, you don't do that. Um, plus, my wife worked for the agency. She knew everything was going on. <laughs> right here, in the front. Can you, she's going to hand you the microphone. That's not to say, also, parenthetically, that the divorce rate, just like in the military and some other professions, sky high in the agency. It's really hard. I'll bet. I was going to ask you about Benghazi, but I won't. I want to know, um, because you and I seem to be maybe the same age or close to it, how did you get recruited? I'm sure you didn't answer an ad, but how did you become um, a CIA agent? Uh, well, I, I, I went to graduate school in journalism, and after that um, I went to Washington to interview for jobs. Um, this was in the mid-70s. and. Um, an ad? No, I just uh, a what lot kind of, of agencies. What jobs did you interview for? I'd say maybe half a dozen. I mean, the Department of Interior and uh, the State Department, 
And then someone said, well, you know, CIA, they're doing interviews. And, and because I had the requisite languages and I could pass a polygraph, um, I got through the first gate. And then a massive background investigation and then uh, interviews by gnarled and twisted psychologists. <laughs> God, God knows what, how, they, you know, how, how they assessed me. Sociopath with a bipolar vibe. I mean, who knows? And 33, later, 33 years later, I woke up. One or two more, and then we'll go to the line. Yes, right here in the red, unless I'm missing somebody. Would you please use the microphone, though? Thank you. I want to thank you for your service, because I you. think the CIA doesn't get that kind of credit when they should. And when I listen to you talk about the things you did, I'm sure you kept me safe when I didn't even know it was happening. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Do we have one more, or should we adjourn to the lobby? Yes, right here on the aisle. Roger or someone? Thanks, Jill. Right here, up front. Thank you. Did you have a hard time going from writing like uh, courier-like like letters to your employer and then writing this more evolved and in involved uh, scenario in a book. Was that a difficult translation? Uh, the, the, the two styles, government bureaucraties and, and cableese, um, is, is a lot different than anything that you'd want to read, you know, in, in any kind of a fic fiction book. But I couldn't resist the temptation to put in, for instance, uh, fictitious cables between characters so that the reader could read how how twisted and insane Cable Lee's actually is. <laughs> it's, it, it's short and choppy and very economical, dating back from the days when communication systems basically uh, were, were actually, uh, they were sort of budgeted by the, by the space. So we had, a, we had a sort of an abbreviated patois that uh, was literally sa saving bandwidth. Now modern communications, you can write just generically, but uh, in the old days, it was very truncated. Uh, not, not especially. I, you know, I, I read all my life and, and, and admired lots of different authors, and I just started writing. You make it sound so, e so easy. <laughs> Jason's actually an Australian. He's a retired FedEx pilot. He was never in the CIA. <laughs> How do you know that's my real name? <laughs> that was our conversation with Jason Matthews, recorded live at the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan, in May 2013. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Writer Series podcast. I'm Doug Stanton.